book of Exodus, and we're nearing the end of it. Uh, the next four or five weeks, we will be um, covering this golden calf story that we'll start today and, uh, and, and what happens in its aftermath. And my prayer is, is that by Christmas time, uh, we will wrap up the book of Exodus and uh, seek the Lord's direction about what we shall study and, uh, and consider together in the coming year. But what we've seen in Exodus, if you've been here with us, is how God saves a people. How He sustains them in the wilderness. How He enters into a covenant with them at Sinai. How He ratifies that covenant with blood. And then in Exodus chapter 25, Moses goes back up to the top of the mountain. And while up on top of the mountain, God gives Moses instructions for how to worship God. He gives Moses instructions for how a holy God can dwell amidst an unholy people like Israel. He gives them instructions about a moving tent called a tabernacle that God will dwell in about the priesthood, those who will oversee the sacrifices and worship for the people of Israel. And while Moses is up on top of the mountain getting God's instructions for worship, he leaves his brother Aaron down at the bottom of the mountain in charge. And Moses has been gone for about 40 days at this point. And our text tells us what happens when Moses is away. Let's read Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your e- the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. 
But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they will inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is a story many of us are familiar with. It's possibly the most famous story of the Israelites rebelling against God and breaking their covenant. It's literally just weeks after they had ratified the covenant and agreed to keep the laws that God had given them in Exodus 24. And it's famous because it shows us something that we've already seen in the wilderness between Egypt and Sinai. That the people of Israel have a good God that has saved them, but they still have hearts that are far from God. So they are quick to grumble against God, be impatient with God, and break God's laws. In short, they are a people who are willing to compromise God's standards and God's laws if they think it will help them to get what they want. And what I want to do this morning with this familiar story is point out three truths that I think it's important for us to see and beneficial for us to reflect on. The first being this. We see in our text that Israel is a compromised people. Israel is a compromised people. Listen, they don't like waiting on God. After 40 days, they decide enough is enough. They want a new leader. They have plans for their life. They're ready to get moving. And part of those plans is not waiting on some prophet up on a mountain to get worship rules. They are ready to get moving now. So they go to Aaron, the man left in charge, the associate pastor, if you will. And they say, let us make gods. We need you to make some gods to lead us. And without hesitation, Aaron gets busy and fashions a golden calf out of the gold that he collects, gold that was given to Israel from God to be used to build the tabernacle so that God could dwell with His people. And then the people declare, these are our gods who brought us out of Egypt. Notice a few truths about Israel. First, they're impatient. They're impatient. They want a God who will win them victory. They want a God who will meet their needs, but they do not want a God that they have to wait on. Like a coach in the SEC, when you get hired, you are given a timetable to turn things around, or we will find someone who will. That is how Israel treats the God of the universe, Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, who saved them from their bondage. 
But friends, we need to be reminded that God is in the heavens and He does as He pleases. He is the sovereign Lord of all. He does what He wants, when He wants. And His timing and His plan is better than ours. It is, in fact, perfect. But this is what we do. We forget that impatience is sin. We are quick to point out sin in other people's lives. We are quick to notice moral failure and compromise in other people's lives. We're quick to notice when they use their tongues to harm others or say words they shouldn't. When they do things on the weekends and late at night that they shouldn't do. When they're sexually immoral. We're quick to point those things out. But impatience has become a respectable sin among God's people today. One that they say, well, everyone's impatient. Friends, impatience is not just a character flaw. It is sin against God. 1 Corinthians 13, love is what? Love is patient. Love is kind. Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. How quick are we to point out someone else's sin, someone else's lack of self-control, someone else's lack of commitment to the church, someone else's spiritual immaturity when our life is marked by being quick to anger and slow to being patient? Christians are not supposed to be people that are always short with others. Christians are not supposed to be quick to anger. Christians are not supposed to live their life insisting on their own way, acting as if their time is more valuable than others' time. Christians are not supposed to act rashly and not wait on God's timing and just give up on what God is doing because it's not happening quickly enough. This happens in all of our lives. It happens in our relationships with others, in circumstances in our life. It even can happen in ministry. When the ministry we're investing in is dragging, when the evangelism and sharing the gospel that we're doing is not yielding conversions, when those that we're trying to invest in and disciple into maturity are growing too slowly, when that sin in our life we're trying to put to death is not dying easily, it's dying hard, when that trial that we're in the midst of is not ending as quickly as we'd like, when things are not easy and quick and on our timetable, we are prone to give up, grow discouraged, change directions and forget that God is working in our waiting. He's not just going to work after our waiting. He's not just going to accomplish His plans after this is over, this waiting. Instead, He is working in our waiting for our good, for our godliness, for our holiness, for our faith, to teach us to depend on and trust in Him and to remind us day after day that He is God and we are not. God cannot be put on timetables because He is God and we are not. Impatience is sin. And it's sin that for Israel leads them to the second truth we see about them, that they're not just impatient, but they're also idolaters. They pretend to make a God. They break the first two commandments that God had given on Mount Sinai. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. Their impatience with God leads them to idolatry. But listen to this. Their idolatry also is what led them to impatience in the first place. 
Let me explain. An idol is not just an image that you bow down to and worship, but instead an idol is any sort of God replacement in your life. Anything that you give your worship and your allegiance and your trust to other than God. You can commit idolatry by simply giving your allegiance and worship to anything other than God, even if you never get on your knees and bow down to a golden calf like Israel did. What Israel worshipped more than anything was not God. It was health, wealth, peace, comfort, and control. Those are the things that they lived for. Those are the things that they believed, if I have this, this will give me joy. This will give me peace. This will give me happiness. This will make my life worth living. This is what I want for my future. I need those things, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get those things. God wasn't their God. These idols were their true God. And they were willing to obey and follow God as long as He was giving them the goods. As long as He was providing them what they really wanted. As long as their life was marked by health and wealth and peace and comfort and they could be in control of their own lives, then God is on high. Amen. Let's sing praises to Him. But when the journey was slow, when the journey was marked by trials, then they would quickly go looking elsewhere, looking for another God to help them get what they were really after, looking for another God to feed their idols. There were idols in Israel's heart, and those idols in their heart not being fed, not being satisfied, is what led them to impatience with God's timing. And their impatience with God's timing led them to create a physical image, a golden calf to bow down and worship. This golden calf was not a new idea. They didn't just think this up. Instead, for centuries, as slaves in Egypt, the people of Israel had watched the Egyptians worship the bovine family. They represented strength and power. And that's what they wanted, was a God who was strong and powerful enough to make their life look like Egypt's life did, being rich and prosperous and powerful. Sure, the Lord of Israel came in and destroyed them, but they're not willing to wait on Him right now, so they'll just revert back to worshiping the gods of the Egyptians and to trying out what those people did. Because remember what their life looked like? They had food and prosperity and wealth, and all, and all they were doing was worshiping. So, so we need to make us one of these. We need to make ourselves a golden calf. They're willing to do whatever it takes to get whatever ends they're after. The word for that is pragmatism. Pragmatism is when we say, all I care about is getting what I'm after, and even if it means that I have to be unfaithful to God, I'll do it. And pragmatism is alive and well today in our churches and in our lives. In our churches, if you want the appearance of success to validate yourself, then you lower the standards. You strive not to make disciples of Jesus, but to make decisions for Jesus. 
You prey on people's emotions instead of building your ministry on truth. You use worldly wisdom and methods to attract a crowd to a watered-down, powerless gospel that cannot transform lives. Outside of the church, when pragmatism is the king, we will buck against God's standards and rules and laws for how we ought to live in order to get what we want. We will let the bottom line justify whatever sinful actions and practices we choose to commit. Friends, compromised people will ignore God's standards because God is not their true treasure, their idols are. They don't trust that God is satisfying enough, good enough, enjoyable enough. They don't trust that He can give them the peace and the hope that they're after. They're using God as a means to another end. And because of that, their lives are marked by pragmatism, by worship of false gods. Friends, we may not bow down to an image or a golden calf today, but we are just as prone to idolatry as the people of Israel were. Our hearts must be changed and our idols must be destroyed or we too will be a compromised people. But there's more that we see here. We don't just see in our text that Israel is a compromised people. We secondly see that Aaron is a compromised leader. Aaron is a compromised leader. Just think about Aaron and what we know about him so far in the book of Exodus. He was Moses' brother who God sent out to Moses... He was his right-hand man. Aaron and Moses were the ones who went to Pharaoh and confronted him and demanded that he let Israel go. Aaron had seen firsthand the power of God in the plagues, the Passover and the Red Sea. He had seen them with his eyes. Aaron in the wilderness had ate the manna, the quail that God had sent in and drank the water that God had given them from the rock. Aaron had heard God's audible voice at the base of Mount Sinai And then, as one of the leaders had gone halfway up in Exodus 24 to feast and to see a part of God when the covenant was ratified, Aaron was supposed to be the first high priest of Israel. He was supposed to be the most holy man in Israel. He was supposed to offer the sacrifices for Israel and pray for the people of Israel. He had access to God. He had seen God, but he forgets all of that when some grumbling Israelites come complaining about how things are going. Instead of obeying and fearing God, Aaron obeys and fears man. And that's the first truth that we see here about a compromised leader. Compromised leaders love man's applause more than God. They love the applause of man. Listen to me. If you would rather be liked than be faithful, then you cannot be a leader of God's people. If you would rather be liked than be faithful, you cannot be a leader of God's people because God's ways are not often popular or easy. And shepherds are called to lead, nurture, and protect, not follow and coddle the sheep. I'm not just talking about pastors. I'm talking about if you want to be a leader in the kingdom of God, 
Biblical leaders must have convictions and must be willing to obey God no matter what it means, no matter how it affects their poll numbers. They must follow their conscience even if that means that they stand alone. And Aaron fails. Aaron disobeys God. And Aaron betrays his brother, the prophet of Israel, Moses. Because man's applause is his God. Man's applause is the idol that leads him to make the idol of the golden calf. Compromised leaders love man's applause. But a second truth about a compromised leader is they will mix truth with error. They will mix truth with error. Aaron leads Israel into idolatry and then has the audacity to say, tomorrow we're going to have a feast to the Lord Yahweh. We're going to have a feast and celebrate and worship the God of Israel, Yahweh, tomorrow. Aaron is claiming that this idol, this golden calf, actually represents the Lord. And he's claiming that their worship is offered to God. Aaron is trying to justify his actions. Aaron is claiming here that if they give worship to the Lord with their words, then it will mean that God will be okay with their clear disregard of His law in their actions. Because what they do and what they look and sound like, will look and sound like true worship. But it is mixed with hellish idolatry. Friends, standing behind a pulpit, writing a book, having a following does not make someone faithful. Being a good musician, producing popular music does not make you a theologian. You can say and preach and write and sing words that sound spiritual but are destructive. And half-truths are more dangerous than full-out lies. You know why? Because blatant lies are easy to spot. Half-truths require discernment. Something that sadly has disappeared in a biblically illiterate church culture where our passion for the Lord trumps our theological precision about the Lord, where serving the Lord trumps our study of knowing Him rightly, where our traditions trump the truth of God's Word, where happiness is prioritized over holiness, where peddlers of God's Word profit off of spiritual children who've never grown up to mature and can't spot a counterfeit from the real thing. Friends, compromised leaders mix truth with error. They always have. They always will. But compromised leaders don't just love man's applause and mix truth with error. They also don't take responsibility for their actions. Look over with me at verses 21 through 24. I didn't read it, but I just want to read these verses. This is what happens when Moses comes down off the mountain. We'll look at this in more detail next week. This is what happens when he comes down and confronts his brother Aaron. Verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, 
What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin on them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let anyone who has gold take it off. And they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. Aaron's response when held accountable for mixing truth with error and loving man's applause more than God is to point the finger at the people. He says it was their idea, and he acts as if the golden calf just came into existence on its own. There's no ownership, there's no responsibility. Instead, there's blame shifting, there's excuses, and there are straight out lies. A compromised leader will love man's applause, will mix truth with error, will look and sound spiritual in the process, and they will point the finger at others when they are confronted. They will justify their actions and claim to be innocent, which will sometimes temporarily work with people, but it will not work with the subject of our final point this morning. I want you to see, lastly, not only that the people of Israel are compromised, and that Aaron, their leader, is compromised, but turn your attention to the Lord Yahweh, the uncompromising God. Atop Mount Sinai, God is giving instructions to Moses about how He is to be worshipped, but He stops giving His revelation to tell Moses what is happening below. Because God sees all. The Lord Yahweh knows all. Nothing escapes His gaze. He knows our actions. He knows our thoughts. He knows our hearts. He doesn't just know. He judges. Our God is a judge. He evaluates our choices and our actions and our thoughts. In God's Word, He says that Israel has corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly from My law. And they are a stiff-necked people indicating they will not submit to Me as I am leading them. Instead, they will keep their necks stiff and buck against My authority. The true God, the God of the Bible, sees all and judges all. Whether you like it or not. Friends, let us not fall for the lie that God has no opinions about sin. People today will claim that their God accepts them just as they are. But that God that they say they believe in is a pretend God. A God of their imagination. A God that they have made in their own image. A God that does not truly exist. The true God cannot be hidden from. He knows all and sees all and evaluates all and judges all because He is a holy God. But there's more. This uncompromising God not only sees all and judges all, He also will not identify with an unholy people. 
He will not identify with an unholy people. Look at what he says to Moses. He says, go down to your people, Moses. Go down to the people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. He doesn't say, Moses, go down to my people. Go down to my people who I've called them by my name. Go down to my people that I've called to be holy. Go down to my people that I've saved. He says, go down to your people who you brought out of Egypt. Now we know that it was by God's power and plan alone that Israel was saved. But this holy God cannot be near evil and cannot tolerate evil because He is holy. He cannot identify with us when we choose our sin over Him. When we willfully, unrepentantly say to God, I know that you're king and I want to go to heaven and I know that you have died for me and forgiven me and all those different things and you can have every area of my life but this, this and this, I'm just going to Keep doing and trust in your grace. That that is unrepentant sin. God cannot dwell in the midst of a people. He cannot identify with a people who choose their sin over Him. God says, be holy as I am holy. God expects that His people will be holy and set apart and distinct because the God of the Bible is a consuming fire. This uncompromising God cannot bend His standards. Israel has broken their covenant with God, and God will hold them accountable. He says to Moses, this is the God of the Bible. He says to Moses, leave me. Why? That my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. For God to be good... For God to be righteous, for God to be just, for Him to be worthy of our worship, He must stand opposed to and punish evil. And Israel's rebellion deserves the wrath of God. God cannot be God if He is not holy. His standard cannot bend. He cannot lower the bar, grade on the curve, look the other way, or ignore our rebellion. The uncompromising God sees all, cannot identify with an unholy people, and cannot bend His standards. Why? Because He is God. He is God. Israel is a compromised people. Aaron is a compromised leader. And the Lord Yahweh is an uncompromising God. As sinners today who can identify with imperfect Israel and its leaders, God's holiness should cause us to tremble. God's holiness should cause us to fear. You can ignore it if you want. You can pretend like the God of the Bible is not as mean as He used to be. But the God of the Bible is not mean. He is righteous. He is holy. And the plight of the people of Israel in their sin and the judgment that they deserve resonates with us today because their plight and sin is ours. And the judgment they deserve is the same that we do. The all-seeing, all-knowing, righteous and holy God of the universe stands against our idols 
He stands against our disobedience. He stands against our lack of faith. He stands against our impatient hearts. He stands against our pragmatic attitudes that justify what we do because it gets results. He stands against our lack of discernment and inability to be able to spot the truth from a lie. He stands against our love of man's approval more than Him. God's wrath burns hot against our sin. We don't like to think about God in that way, but there is no other God. There is no other God than the God of the Bible. But notice Moses' words. As a mediator for the people of Israel, Moses immediately begins to beg for God to show mercy and grace. And notice how he does it. Notice what he doesn't say. Moses doesn't say, Oh Lord God who has saved us, please give Israel another chance. They deserve it. Everyone makes mistakes, God. I know idol worship isn't best, but it's not that big of a deal. Come on, God. It was just a little sin. Give them some grace. Show them extra chances. That's not what Moses says. He doesn't beg for God to show mercy based on Israel's goodness, based on Israel deserving a second chance, because Moses knows they don't deserve a second chance. Moses was there. Moses knows the covenant. Moses knows what God said would happen to the people of Israel if they broke the covenant. Moses knows and believes wholeheartedly that the people of God who have rebelled against Him and broke His covenant deserve to face the judgment of God. So he doesn't say it's not a big deal. Sin's not a big deal. Let's minimize it. Give them an extra chance. Be a gracious God. That's not what he says. Instead, he begs for God to show mercy based on God's righteousness and his reputation and his glory and his character. He says, God, remember your promises. Remember your promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember the promises you gave them to bring them into land and make them a great people and to bless the world and the nations through them. God, if you destroy these people now, even though they deserve it, if you give them what they deserve right out here in the wilderness, then the people of Egypt and the people of the nations will say, look at that God. He acted like He was saving them, but then He just destroyed them. He said, God, not for their sake, but for Your name's sake, for Your glory, for Your reputation. Show mercy. Show mercy. And because God is faithful, and because He always keeps His promises, and because He deserves all glory, God relents and does not destroy Israel in Exodus 32. There are consequences, and we'll see those consequences in the coming weeks. But for now, God will delay His judgment because God is a promise keeper. And because the people's mediator went to God and begged for mercy. But there's another reason that God delays His judgment and relents from totally annihilating Israel. The other reason is this. 
Because the all-knowing God knows that a day still looms long off in the future where His justice and His holiness and His righteousness will be fully upheld. Because one day a faithful Israelite, a descendant of this rebellious people at the bottom of Sinai that are worshiping the golden calf, one day a descendant will come who will keep God's law perfectly. And he will come and he will be an even greater mediator for God's people than Moses could have ever been. God relents from giving Israel what they deserve in Exodus 32 because the all-seeing, all-knowing God knows that Gethsemane and Calvary are coming. He knows that the greater mediator, Jesus Christ, will one day come, fulfill the law, and atop atop Gethsemane will cry out, let the cup of your wrath pass. He will cry out for God's wrath to be turned away, just like Moses does in Exodus 32. But Jesus, the greater mediator, will do something different. He will not beg for God to show mercy just with His words, but He will instead bear the judgment and wrath of God for the people's sin in their place on the cross at Calvary. Jesus goes to Calvary, bears the full force of God's consuming wrath against our sin, and because of Him, an unholy people can be counted holy and righteous. Because of Him, God can identify Identify with an imperfect but redeemed people. Because of Jesus, we are empowered by faith to trust in God's timing and walk our lives trusting Him instead of living impatient with Him and others. Because of Jesus, we can put our idols to death and enjoy the true treasure of God. Because of Jesus, we can be leaders who follow God instead of living for man's applause. Because of Jesus, we can can have renewed, discerning, God-besotted minds who know the truth from error. Because of Jesus, we can be faithful instead of falling for the lies of pragmatism. Jesus offers to us forgiveness and redemption and transformation and empowerment and a future and an inheritance. He saves us. He sustains us. He will keep us. He is the treasure. Hallelujah. It's all about Jesus. That is the gospel. The message of the gospel of Jesus that we pray and we preach and we sing week after week in Sunday school and Awana and youth and in our service is the message of how a compromised people who are sinful like us can dwell with an uncompromisingly holy and righteous God because of the marvelous, infinite love our Savior has shown by bearing God's wrath in our place. Condemned He stood. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Him, then your need today is salvation. Your need today is surrender. Your need today is repentance and faith. Jesus calls, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will give you forgiveness He will justify you before the throne of God. 
He will empower you to say no to your sin. He will give you a new and better mission and purpose for your life. He will keep you to the end through the ups and downs, the mountains and the valleys. He is faithful, but you must repent and believe. You must bow the knee, not to a golden calf, but to the Savior who died for your sins. And if you're here and you know Him this morning, then I pray that you will join me in committing yourself by God's help to being faithful and uncompromising, to being holy and to trusting God's timing. I pray that you'll join me in the walk of holiness by God's help. Whatever your need is this morning, whether it's to be saved, whether it's for God to continue to sanctify you, whether it's to come to the altar or stay where you are or stand or sit or pray or whatever it might be, whatever your need is, if the Spirit is speaking to you this morning about you and God and Jesus and what He's calling you to do, then I pray that you will be sensitive to His Spirit and follow His lead because He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our attention and our affection because He is Savior and He is God. Let us bow the knee to King Jesus, our Savior and Lord, as we close today. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your grace. God, I pray that You will so work in us, Lord, that we are saved and changed by the gospel. God, there are people here who know you and who need to renew and recommit giving their lives to you. There are people here who are living in sin and need to repent. There are people here in the midst of hardship and trial that are right on the edge of giving up. They're right on the edge of going after something else that they think will work. There are people here, God, myself included, Lord, who say with our mouths that we love You, and yet so often the idols of our hearts is what we are living for and pursuing. God, I pray that You will help us to lift our gaze above our trial and our hardship and our sin. Lift our gaze up past what we're going through, past how we're feeling, past our emotions, and look to You, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, help us to look to Jesus, rest in Jesus, remember Jesus, be freed by Jesus, have faith in Jesus, be empowered by Jesus. And God, we know that we can only do that. We can only live for You. We can only run hard after You. When we start with repentance, when we start with saying no to sin, when we start by making the choice to surrender, whatever it is that's keeping us from faithfulness to You. God, this song, give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. God, help us not to lift our hearts to another. God, that's our prayer. As we close, we pray. Lord, that this won't just be words, this won't just be the next thing before we finish the service, but God, that You will make this a moment to meet with You and to cry these things out to You. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.